Hello everyone, it's Erin with The Coloradoan. Before I jump into this episode of The Way It Was, I just want to warn you all. This story touches on some pretty heavy subjects, including domestic violence, murder, and suicide. If that's not for you, I'd skip this one. If you're up for it though, let's get started. Wading through one of Fort Collins' earliest tragedies. It starts, for me at least, earlier this summer in Old Town Square. Cool. All right, I'll have my 5.30 ghost tour. Come gather on around. How exciting. How fun, how fun. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Fort Collins Ghost Tours. Uh, my name is Emma. I will be your host on tonight's tour. So if you have any... I was there crashing a downtown ghost tour. And after starting in the square, our guide Em led us down Walnut Street to our first stop of the evening. Happy Lucky's Tea House, or rather, under Happy Lucky's Tea House. The spooky basement felt like the perfect place for a ghost tour, and fittingly, the building once housed Fort Collins's first city hall, fire department, and an attached jail. We were told about some of the conditions in Fort Collins's early jails. They didn't sound great. And then M launched into the first big story of the tour. It was the reason I was there, actually. Now, the story that I have for you guys down here is one of my favorites and arguably one of the most infamous stories that we have here in Fort Collins history. And that, my friends, is the story of James and Eva Howe. Now, James and Eva's story gets its start, like so many others in the early days of Fort Collins, as a young married couple moving out westward from New York looking for the prospects of a life out here on the frontier. Uh, Especially for James in 1880 as he was a millwright, and so did very well for himself here, building a couple of our mills here. But he also, being the outstanding person he was, would volunteer whenever he could at the firehouse that would have been just up above us to help with the fires that so plagued our town in its early days. Eva was no different. She was very well beloved in all of the social circles that she traveled. They were, for all intents and purposes, the sweetheart couple of Fort Collins at the time. Well, about three years past, they decide they like Fort Collins so much, they want to make this their permanent residence. And so, of course, James, being skilled in building, builds their house, the Howe's house, not a block from where we find ourselves today. It is also about this time when they decide to have a little baby, a little daughter that they would name Gertrude. Sounds idyllic, right? A young family making a go of it in the American West. Unfortunately, though, while James was a talented millwright and seemingly respected Fort Collins resident, he was also an alcoholic. A violent one. On April 3, 1888, he came home drunk and beat Eva. According to old newspaper accounts, she reported him to the local sheriff's office, but didn't want him arrested or jailed. She just wanted a deputy to stay close to their house that night. The next morning, James left and Eva reportedly started hatching an escape plan. She took their little daughter Gertrude to a neighbor's. She found a place to store her furniture, and then she started packing, with the intent of taking Gertrude to live with her mom and stepdad up in Canada. James came home that afternoon and purportedly found his wife making plans to leave him. So he took a knife, a small three-inch blade, and he stabbed her. She stumbled out of their little house on Walnut Street and managed to yell, murder. People in the street took notice and watched as she collapsed into the couple's front yard. A doctor rushed over on horseback, but she was gone. 
James was soon found laying on the couple's bed. He didn't put up a fight when he was arrested and booked into a holding cell. You have to understand Fort Collins was a very small town at this time. Evil was beloved by Fort Collins, and many of the townspeople were not happy with what James had done. Like I'd also mentioned, we had just had electricity uh, installed in our streets just a couple months before these events, but at 8 o'clock on April 4th, 1888, that electricity was cut, and the town was plunged into darkness, and all manner of townsfolk donning cloak and hood descended upon the very basement you now find yourselves in, and they demanded James. The sheriff, being a man of law, would not freely give up the key to James's cell. So he decided to conveniently spend the night out at one of our local saloons, leaving poor James to sit in the corner of his cell in abject horror for the next 45 minutes as he watches the town of Fort Collins take hammer and chisel to the bars of his jail cell to break him free. They would then grab him by his hair, his clothes, anything they could, drug him kicking and screaming over to where they were constructing a new courthouse. They threw a rope over one of the derricks, fashioned one end around James's neck, the other to a horse, gave that horse a good kick, and up into the night flew James. Now James would anger for about an hour before the town finally dispersed the sheriff the corner could go over and cut him down. Amusingly, I am told that the rope that hung James, the knife that cut him down, still exist. And I am told that they exist in the Discovery Museum's collection of all places. A few quick things here. It sounds like James wasn't actually jailed in the basement of Happy Lucky's Tea House. By 1888, a new county courthouse was under construction at Mason and Mountain, and that area, known as Courthouse Square, was already home to a stone jailhouse. It sounds like that's where James was actually put that night. Also, the reports I've read said Sheriff Davy never voluntarily left the jail, but was placed under guard by the mob as they broke James out of his cell. The horse story is hazy, too. The Fort Collins Courier reported it was the mob of men who hoisted James to his death. The hammer and chisel part is true, though. So is the bit about some artifacts from that evening still being at the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery. A knife and small length of rope were found in the museum as it was getting ready to move to its current location just over a decade ago. While not exactly confirmed to be the rope that hanged James or the knife that cut him down, Thomas H. Davey, Sheriff, is written on the blade in faded black ink, along with a date, April 4th, 1888. It's an infamous day in Fort Collins history, both the date of Eva Howe's murder and the day Fort Collins saw its first and only lynching. If you've lived in Fort Collins very long, you've probably heard all of this before. The tragic story of James and Eva Howe is pretty well known. But this podcast, surprisingly, isn't really going to be about Eva and James. It has to do with someone else. Someone whose name you heard early on in M's tale. Gertrude. Gertrude Howe was just five or six years old when her mother was murdered and her father was lynched. Overnight, she became an orphan. And a sort of footnote in this tragic pioneer town tale. She was at a neighbor's house when it all happened. We know that. But what happened after? That's the question I've set out to answer. So let's continue, shall we? With episode 35 of The Way It Was. What about Gertrude?
Before we really dig into this episode, I wanted to go back to how the idea for it came about. This spring, the Colorado interned 150, and we hosted a local history trivia night at Illegal Pete's in Old Town. The house, Little White House used to sit where Illegal Pete's is now. It was built there around 1884 and was later moved. I was double-checking some facts about the house for one of our trivia questions, and I landed on northerncoloradohistory.com, a wonderful blog run by historian Meg Dunn. I was perusing one of Meg's stories about Eva and saw a comment below. Whatever happened to Eva and James's daughter, Gertrude, the commenter asked. I'm ashamed to say now that in all my times reading about Eva's murder and James's lynching, I had never really thought of the little daughter they left behind. Before reading that comment, I didn't even know her name. But I was officially hooked. I wanted to know too. During a recent interview, I chatted with Meg about Gertrude. I started off asking her when she first learned of the Howes story. She's written about it several times by now. Yeah, I have. I'm thinking it was pretty early on because there's just kind of wisps of talking about it. And Pateros Creek Brewery, do you remember mm-hmm. them? They had a How's It Hangin' beer, H-O-W-E, apostrophe S, How's It Hangin'. Yeah, that was kind of funny. So I think that was soon after I did... Well, it, around that time is when I had written the first article. Could you speak to why this story is such a big history story for Collins? Well, it's our only known lynching. That's a biggie. I have had heard rumors recently of another lynching, but I can't verify it at all. So this is the only documented lynching, and it was of a white guy. And it galvanized the community So I was thinking of this today as I was looking at the newspapers to kind of remind myself about Gertie. And there's this little article in there. When will people finally figure out we have to deal with this drinking issue? Blah, blah, blah. And it reminded me of after every mass shooting. When are people going to deal with this gun issue? And it's like, it's the exact same scenario, really. So it really galvanized the whole prohibition movement here in Fort Collins. So it was kind of a turning point, I guess, in town. This is a subject for another podcast. I could probably do a whole series on it. Basically, Fort Collins prohibited liquor much earlier and much longer than the rest of the country. Prohibition passed here in 1896, in part thanks to horror stories like Eva's and women getting the right to vote in Colorado. So... You mentioned to me earlier that you you did kind of look for Gertrude at some point. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, I've tried to find her. I looked again at all the stuff I have on Ancestry.com, and maybe she became a nurse, and maybe she became a nun. But, the, you know, usually when you look on a census record, it'll tell you where someone's born, and then you can go, okay, I've got the right Gertie. It's, they don't list Colorado. They don't list any states. It just says you know, U.S. citizen, so we don't know what happened to Gertie, really. Yeah. We know she went with her grandparents, with her grandma, because her grandpa was a step-grandpa. According to Meg's research, there were several Gertrude Howes that matched our Gertrude Howes' age. There was a nurse, a bookkeeper in Rochester, a nun in New York City, but nothing definitive. 
In the course of putting together this podcast, I spoke with three people who have tried to find Gertrude at some point. It's a mission that honestly just feels like a big game of telephone. In the years after her parents' deaths, stories have cropped up and taken on lives of their own. She went to go live with her aunt in Iowa. No, it was Kansas. Wait, Canada. Tom McClellan is no stranger to these rumors, these stories. Like Meg and myself, he also went on a hunt for Gertrude. It makes sense. He's a retired Fort Collins police captain and now serves as the police department's historian. He's likely researched the history of public safety and crime in Fort Collins more than anyone else. And he stumbled across the story of Eva, James, and Gertrude plenty. On a recent phone call, Tom detailed why he thinks the hows stick out in Fort Collins history. There's, of course, the lynching of James, like Meg said, and the brutality of Eva's murder. But then there's Gertrude. I think anybody who reads this about this case, because it's in a lot of different Fort Collins history books, and so many people have read it, I, I have to believe that um, they're just heartsick over the fact that young Gertrude was left an orphan in one day. Both her mother and father were dead. And, and so I always felt horrible about that and wanted to know what happened, and I have not been able to found, find out factually what happened to Gertrude. I've heard some stories about it, but I haven't been able to verify it. And I think most people that read this case would feel the same way. A little girl, five years old, um, yeah, it just it makes me heartsick even, even to think about it now. You did mention when we spoke earlier that you had heard, um, and again, this isn't based in fact or anything, just oh. kind of um, things you've heard around town, that she possibly came back to Fort Collins. Um, I can't even recall now who, who the source. It was a person that told me this, and I can't remember, remember the source. Um, but I have not been able to verify it. And as you know, Aaron, history is very interesting because it can be changed so readily and so quickly, and you never really know what is the exact truth because it's hard to tell 100, 150 years ago. But I did hear that Gertrude went to live with her uh, maternal grandparents in Canada and that she did come back as an elderly woman to Fort Collins at one point. Um, and, and I did hear that this was reported in the paper, but... Again, when I when I got that information, I went right to the computer, tried to verify it. I can find nothing to verify that information. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a nice story. <laughs> oh yeah, um, and I mm-hmm. hope it's true. Um, yeah. You know, uh, again, to think of this poor little girl. Just even today, I just I hate the thought of it. And um, I I think we're all looking for something happy for her in her life that could have happened, but I can't verify it with facts. So mm-hmm. I still feel good about the information I heard, and I I guess I choose to believe that now because it makes me feel good, but um, I don't know for sure. And I hope you're able to find out. Let's try to do just that after this short break. Hello. As per usual, I wanted to pop in and sing the praises of the Coloradoans' digital subscriptions. Subscribers make everything we do here possible, including this very podcast. So if you don't already, 
please, please, please go to coloradoin.com slash podcast offer to sign up for one today. Hi, um, my name is Erin Udell, and I'm a reporter at the Colorado and Newspaper in Fort Collins, Colorado. City Clerks. Hi, um, my name is Erin. I called yesterday and left a voicemail, um, but I just had a quick question about uh, requesting a death certificate. Welcome to Verizon Wireless. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. Announcement. If you'd ever like an exercise in accepting rejection, might I suggest recording a podcast trying to find someone who was alive 135 years ago? I can't tell you exactly how many people I called or public libraries I emailed in my search for Gertrude. It was a lot, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When I started tracing Gertrude's fate, I was lucky enough to find some newspaper articles and old census documents to steer me in the right direction. I also found a person, yes, a real person, whose family was somewhat connected to the house. Let's get into it. Eva and James Howe were both originally from Chautauqua County, New York. Eva was born Eva Schuler, the only surviving child of David and Jane Schuler. She married James Henry Howe in New York when she was about 15 and he was 19. Eva's father died when she was young, and her mom, Jane, later remarried a man named Oliver Vanderwark. Oliver was a New Yorker, but he had briefly spent some time in Fort Collins in the 1870s. And by 1880, when James and Eva made their journey out west, Oliver's son, Elmore, and half-brother, Martin Vanderwark, were establishing themselves in the town. I assumed that's why the house came out to Fort Collins, because of the Vanderwarks. But it sounds like Oliver's ties to the area were more tenuous than you'd think. According to Johanna Whiteman, Oliver's three times great-granddaughter, Oliver left his wife and son, Elmore, when Elmore was just a baby. They obviously weren't close. Oliver's half-brother, Martin, was also much younger than him, about 20 years, so they didn't grow up together. Still, when Eva was murdered and James was lynched, Martin Vanderwark hosted their funeral services, according to the Courier. Eva's mother, Jane Vanderwark, was in attendance. She had come down from her home in Cannington, Ontario. Their funerals were followed by a solemn procession to Grandview Cemetery. The young couple was buried there, side by side, in unmarked graves. Since Grandview had only opened the year before, they were two of its earliest burials. When Jane went back home to Canada, she took her granddaughter Gertrude with her. The family shows up there in Cannington, Ontario, in an 1891 census. Snippets from various newspapers show the family moving back and forth from Canada to upstate New York. In 1900, they were living and working on a farm in Dover, Delaware, according to the federal census. Gertrude was 17 at the time and finished with her schooling. Just before Thanksgiving, 1902, Gertrude Howe married a young electrician named William Argue in Niagara Falls, New York. They were both about 21. By 1904, the couple was living in Buffalo, in the same building as Gertrude's grandparents. William and Gertrude showed up in a marriage index I found online, but more importantly, they're mentioned in a Vanderwerk family history document that Johanna Whiteman had in her family files. Elmore Vanderwerk's son, Willis, wrote the document around the 1940s, Johanna said. 
Willis would have been 19 and living in Fort Collins in 1888. He'd later go on to work as a motorman for the city's trolley system. Willis wrote a bit about what happened to Eva and James, though he called Eva Anna in the document. He said Oliver Vanderwerk died in Buffalo in 1906 and Jane in 1917. Both dates I've been able to confirm. He also said Gertrude married William Argue, a shoe salesman in Cincinnati, Ohio. They had no children, Willis wrote matter-of-factly. They're all dead now. While Willis mentioned William being a shoe salesman in Cincinnati, and in another article I found said something about them living in Cleveland, I couldn't find any proof that William and Gertrude ever lived in either city together. It's much more likely that they stayed in Buffalo. Because on August 17th, 1908, an article in the Buffalo News shows a familiar name. Mrs. Gertrude Argue, it reads, drank a household antiseptic and was found in the apartment she shared with her husband. She died 10 days later at Buffalo's Emergency Hospital on August 27, 1908. She was 27 years old. I was afraid of this. Of all the possibilities I imagined for this podcast, this ending was my worst-case scenario, even worse than finding nothing at all. If I'd found nothing, I could entertain stories like the one from Tom, about Gertrude passing through Fort Collins as an old lady. Part of me still wants to believe that's possible. You have no idea how much I searched and searched to prove that the Gertrude argue in that Buffalo obituary wasn't our Gertrude argue, our Gertie Howe. But I couldn't find any other meaningful leads. And Willis's family genealogy does say Gertrude died on August 27, 1908. It's the right date. I just think he might have had the wrong city. I so wanted there to be a Howe descendant out there somewhere. Someone to link the past to the present. As far as I can tell, there's nobody. No person, that is. There is a piece of Howe family history still standing in Fort Collins. Its picket fence is long gone, it's no longer white, or on Walnut Street. But the little house that the house called home from 1884 to 1888 lives on, tucked onto a quiet street near City Park. I'm Erin. Hey, Erin, Melissa. Nice to meet you, nice Melissa. Meet you. Oh my gosh, who's this? This is Casey. Oh, <laughs> Casey. Hi, Greg. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. I'm excited. Sure. I, I'm not sure how much I can give you on Gertrude, well, but that's fine. I'll, any any information, I would be happy to. After finding out that James and Eva's house was still in Fort Collins. I looked up its owner earlier this summer. I then psyched myself up to call him, preparing for the possibility that I might be informing an unsuspecting man that his home was connected to one of Fort Collins's most notorious murders. Thankfully, I found Greg Ferry instead. He bought the house a little over 20 years ago and was well aware of the dark story connected to it. He and his wife, Melissa, were gracious enough to welcome me to their cozy home to dig up its past. Oh, and record it all for a podcast. So, um, let's start with you, Greg. So, you've been here for 21 years. Have you known about the house's history as the Howe House that whole time? 
Yes. Um, when I bought it, we made an offer. And um, when the, my realtor called me the evening that we made the offer, said they accepted your offer, but there's something you need to know about the house. And then he faxed this over. This is the point when Greg slides over a photocopied newspaper article about Eva's murder and James's lynching. Yeah. What were, what were your first thoughts? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, like, cool about the house being moved because I knew that the, you know, structural integrity of a house breaks down very easily when you lift it up and move it around. And they didn't put a proper... Um, That's no word foundation. Okay. They kind of put it on a stack of rocks. But structural concerns aside, you weren't worried about you weren't didn't have a particular feeling about its um, history. darker history. Yeah, no, um, no, not really. Okay. Um, past is the past, yeah. and it was a cute house, and I liked the spot, and it has a great backyard. And so yeah, the practical reasons overrode the, you know the whatever sinister undertones that you might be able to, to draw from it. Um, there was an interesting thing that happened, though, the day that I bought it. So I had, um, the day before, Sunday, a, sun, a Sunday at about 3 o'clock, I was just riding my bike, and I saw an open house sign. And so, um, and I was married at the time to someone else, and um I was riding by and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because we were like passively looking at the time, you know, we weren't like really like looking that hard. And like we didn't have a realtor or anything like that. I had a friend that was one. And I came to the house and put my bike on the side and, and, you know, announced myself and knocked and went in and there was nobody here. And so I just walked in and I, I walked into about here. And I just kind of felt this really warm embrace. Mm-hmm. It's like, hmm, this is really, this is cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I kind of looked around and looked out back and said, okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to try for it. So I made an appointment for one o'clock to go look at it or to come look at it. And, um, and then we did and we made the offer and then... I get the call like nine o'clock that night that they accepted it and then they faxed this over. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I'm reading this, right? Three inch blade pocket knife thing, right? Mm-hmm. That day before we even went to the house, in the mail I get from my father a Swiss Army knife with a little yellow sticky note that says, here, I thought you could use this. That was such a coincidence to Greg. He gets a pocket knife with a three-inch blade in the mail, and that same day finds out James Howe used a pocket knife with a three-inch blade in the murder of his wife. The eerie happenings don't stop there, though. But apparently this is the spot right here where he put the knife in her. Really? And then she yeah. stumbled out? Right, and then she went outside, yeah. Wow. And I've had several different that? animals coming in and like going to this spot and really? being really curious. You mentioned that when you first walked into this house, you felt like a warm embrace mm-hmm. and that the animal thing, the animals will come in and be interested right. in that spot. Have you noticed anything odd or um, unexplainable like that? Only one time I was walking through the kitchen and I f- was in bare feet and I stepped on a foot. 
It was so weird. It wasn't a mouse. I it know, wasn't my a dog. Sure it wasn't a <laughs> I, I, you know, I turned the light on. Um, and, you know, I, I could just, you could just feel it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like, it was, re- it was really weird. How long ago would that have been? That was um, probably 15 years ago. Okay. Something like that. And then we have our, <laughs> we have a motion sensor faucet that seems to like, likes to go on by itself. Right. <laughs> but I'm thinking it's just the faucet. <laughs> but and, we joke about and it. And like, our, Eva. Quit it. <laughs> yeah, and our, anything that happens around here, we blame Eva. While Greg and Melissa have found some humor in the history of their house, Greg was quick to point out that they genuinely feel for Gertrude and Eva. It's been 135 years since that April night in 1888, and the tragedy of Eva's death is inescapable, always popping up here and there. It was the same way for some other previous tenants of the house. One of my favorite finds this episode was an oral history interview recorded with Helen Trimble in 1974. She was part of the popular Trimble family. You've probably heard of Trimble Court in Old Town. That's them. Helen's oral history wasn't digitized, but I was able to read its transcript in the history archive. In it, she describes how her parents, Charlie and Emma Trimble, married in the fall of 1888. Emma was from Illinois, so when she moved to Fort Collins to be with her new husband, Charlie's mom wanted to make sure the newlyweds had a house all set up for them. The only one available? You guessed it. James and Eva's Walnut Street home, where Eva's gruesome murder had taken place just five months prior. Charlie had made everyone promise not to tell his new wife its backstory. He didn't want to scare her. But a lace saleswoman kept coming by the house, asking about the woman who used to live there. She bought so much of my lace, my lovely lace, the woman told Emma. She was the nicest woman, and to think that she had to die. My goodness, didn't you know that, she continued. Why, they said there was blood all over the floors. Toward the end of my visit with Greg and Melissa, I shared what I'd found about Gertrude, but I was still very much in denial that she had died so tragically and so young. Even now, I still catch myself wondering if I got it right. History can be so hard to truly nail down. And then Gertrude married a man named William Argue in Niagara Falls in 1902. And sadly, she took her life. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, just about, I think, five years later. 1907. Mm. Um, she drank poison, is what the... Um, in 1908, she drank poison, according to the Buffalo Empire. Mm. I know. I was Another so victim. Oh. I was so bummed. I was really yeah. hoping to find, like, right. someone who was like, oh, great-grandma Gertie. Like, she lived right. a long life and had right. a beautiful... Had a bunch yeah. of kids and... Yeah. So, oh, shit. That's what I found. I'm going to keep looking a little bit and make sure that that's the right Gertrude before I continue, but mm-hmm. that's what I have. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But... That's history for you. You know what? But yeah, and and it's, I mean, you know what? You would have to be really, really strong to come out of something like this and be a positive, happy, let's go have kids person. Mm-hmm. You know. 
Melissa later asked me what happened to Gertrude's husband, William. I couldn't find anything definitive. It looks like he was originally from Canada, the youngest of six of a big farming family with an Irish dad and American mom. He was most often listed as an electrician in censuses and city directories. He lived in Buffalo a few more years after Gertrude's death, then briefly lived with his sister and brother-in-law in Niagara Falls. While I could never find any proof that he was a shoe salesman in Cincinnati or Cleveland, I did find a William Argue who was around the right age who died in 1937. His death certificate shows that he was 61, an unmarried electrician from Buffalo. He was buried in a Cleveland cemetery. I never was able to find out where Gertrude was buried. She's missing from the family plot in Fredonia, New York. I checked with the cemetery. Her grandfather, grandmother, step-grandfather, and brother, a son of James and Eva who died at birth, are all there. But there's no Gertrude. It's fitting, isn't it? Another mystery in her short, mysterious life. While I would love to tie everything up in a nice little bow this episode, I just can't. I think I found the right Gertrude. I'm pretty sure I did. But there's always that layer of doubt. There's always the what-ifs. What if she didn't marry William Argue? What if she had a completely different life? Maybe she did live to be an old woman. And maybe she did come back to visit Fort Collins, the pioneer town she had known as a little girl, back before the unthinkable happened. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. I wouldn't have been able to tell this story without the archive at the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery, Grandview Cemetery, Johanna Whiteman, or the researchers at the Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Niagara Falls Public Libraries. That's it for now. Until next time, history nerds.